You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Forty years thereof. This is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruvain Yeshua Pupko. Rabbi Pupko, there have been many who have decried statements that have been made in the last couple of weeks and perhaps months about what Gaza will be like. There are people who have said that those that want to put the Israeli presence there and turn it into a an extension of Eretz Yisrael are misguided. Uh, there are people who are pushed by a messianic ideal, uh, an ideal of kibush Eretz Yisrael, kibush of what Eretz Yisrael is meant, meant to be. The Chardalniks, as we know, what separates them in many ways from what we call the normative standard, let's say modern orthodox approach, is that they do see what they are doing as acts, an acute messianic mission. Perhaps this is a good time to discuss acute messianism in Eretz Yisrael and in other places as well. So before we get to the craziness that happened in Chabad, this week, just talk a little bit about if you think that the messianism that was pretty much ignited by the the Six Day War that really coalesced within you know the Hardal settler movement it, has it basically been neutralized? Do you think those voices are still? It seems to me they're still quite strong, but do you think that it, it has been minimized as a as a factor? Listen, there is a let's be let's be clear about the Hardal messianism. The Hardal messianism is not focused on one person. The Hardal messianism is the idea that we are living uh, with the uh, the Inquisitor Mashiach of the time of Mashiach, the, uh, the the overwhelming majority of the prophets prophecies have been realized. We see Kibbutz Goliath. We're on the cusp of the majority of Jews in the world living in Israel. Uh, we've acquired the territory, uh, not all of it, but we've acquired the territory of the land of Israel. And anything that is done to reverse that progress is an assault on, uh, on, on, on Mashiach, which is why they reacted so uh, violently, and when I say violently, I mean mostly with words, so violently to the disengagement uh, from Gaza to, uh, to the, uh, the entire Oslo process. Um, Yitzhak Rabin was not assassinated because of Likud incitement. I mean, the left loved to say that in order to delegitimize Likud. Uh, Rabin was assassinated because of that messianism. It was the religious uh, fanaticism of the Zionist religious right that animated uh, Yigal Amir. I'm going to talk, try to talk dispassionately for a moment. The idea of Mashiach is a beautiful idea, and it's something we believe in. But it's also a very dangerous idea. It is a dangerous idea. And that's why the Rambam says things like, you know, these are not, you know, the details of this are not a major part of our faith. The person shouldn't involve themselves in the study of these things. We're not even to study long in the Midrashim about these things. They're not the main thing. 
They bring one closer not to the fear or love of God. They shouldn't calculate the end time. Right, let the wind be blown out of those who calculate the end time. Wait and believe in the generality of the matter. Like we explained. That could not be clear. The Rambam understood very well the potential for excessive engagement in the messianic speculation and in messianic anticipation. It is highly dangerous. We have suffered enormously, whether it was Yeshu, Hanoitzi, or Shabtai Tzvi, from these movements that capitalized on the Jewish belief in the Messiah and wrought terrible, terrible damage. It is a dangerous idea. And... Um, that means we should do exactly what the Rambam said. Believe in HaMashiach, wait for Mashiach, daven for Mashiach, all those things. But to engage in it as an imminent concern is a, the very least a distraction and at worst terribly toxic. You, you, you raise a wonderful point. I, I would just push back a little bit and say that no book, even one as hallowed and as significant as the Mishnah Torah, is created in a vacuum. I think part of what informs the Rambam's strong words are these Meshichim who rose up, not only Jesus, but um, in, the Rambam's, well, for sure. in the Rambam's time. There were in Yemen and other places, the Rambam was intimately familiar with it, of, of what happened. People who rose up against the Muslim rulers of those countries, thinking that they were behind a, 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 a messianic superman ended up being slaughtered and killed. And the Rambam knew that, that this was a caution that needed to be exercised. I also believe that one of the things that distinguishes Judaism from Christianity is that their excessive focus on the next world, on the, on the second coming, it strips the day of its significance. An excessive obsession with a utopian vision has the uh, can have the detrimental impact on understanding the importance of the moment in which you're living right now, and I and the Jewish view always was don't allow visions of the future to distract from the obligations of the day. Remember something, you know. Let's look at it in a secular context. Communism could be called a messianic movement, right? They were going to create a perfect world. We all know that if you believe that you have the power to engineer a perfect world, there are very few moral compromises you won't make along the way to get there. And this idea that you're going to usher in a perfect world, meaning the Messianic age, can be highly dangerous because you believe your adversaries are disrupting that utopia. And uh, when the religious Zionists have turned, some of them have turned to this Messianism, it has given them the license to behave in ways that are highly inappropriate. Now, it's a small number, and our enemies exaggerated, but the number is still there of, of, of settlers who engage in violence against uh, uh, Arabs living in Yudin Shamron, you know, and uh, the violence against Yitzhak Rabin. Uh, you, you see it. And, uh, and remember, the whole vision of Rabbi Cook, which you can certainly disagree with, was one that said, partner with the secular because in their heart of hearts, they're good Jews, and therefore they can be trusted as partners in building and settling the land of Israel, that exploded in their minds, in the minds of the religious Zionist camp, 
with the disengagement from Gaza. So while you had, until that point, religious Zionist leaders who hallowed the institutions of the state as an expression of deeply felt uh, Jewish identification, their descendants today do not hallow the institutions of the state. I think it might have even started before. I mean, Rav Cook is sort of like the grandfather of their movement. Right. But the father of the movement is Rav Tzvi Yehuda, who is Rav Cook's son, right. who was so moved by the events of 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 the 67 war, of the Six-Day War, that I think he sharpened the focus and pushed for the aggressive settling of every area possible as a kiyum in Yishev Eretz Yisrael. You and I both lived during the period of the Six-Day War. We remember the exuberance of joy uh, and being able to walk to the coastal, to be in the old city, to go again, right, to the, what is the cradle of Jewish life in Hebron uh, and, and, and other places in Yudin Shamlon, the cradle of Jewish civilization. It's intoxicating. And it's the very moment of, of intoxication that we have to be most cautious, right? You have to be very careful when you win, right? That's the most dangerous time in a person's life, in a community's life, in a nation's life, is after the intoxication of victory. That's the time when one needs to be most careful. And not everyone was careful. And uh, well, let me put it this way. Before the Golan was annexed, right? You know, uh, there was no movement in Israel to give it to Syria. Uh, but there was a movement in Israel, which culminated in Oslo, to give up the territories. And again, this is a little anachronistic because right now there's no constituency in Israel which talks about a surrender of territory in a serious way because uh, the events of the Second Intifada and, and now October 7th. But in those days, there were people pushing to get rid of the land, right? Because they wanted to end the occupation, as they said. There was no movement on the Golan. Why? Because the Golan was sold as necessary for security. That same argument is just as compelling, maybe more compelling, on the West Bank. But instead of selling the West Bank to Israelis as security, the religious Zionist camp sold it as a biblical adventure. Okay, that's what happened. It should have been sold solely as a security issue. That you can't return to 67 borders, which again, you know, Abi Ban called them Auschwitz borders, for God's sakes, right? That they would left Israel too vulnerable and too fragile, words that people would maybe find inappropriate today. He called them Auschwitz borders, leaving Israel nine, you know, nine miles, of, you know, across at, at, at its most narrow point and putting the major populations of, of, of Israel not in missile range, but in rifle range. And because of that, they triggered the opposition uh, to it. So that's a very tactical reason. That's a practical reason, right? You stir up the anti-religious sentiments among some on the left. But on a, on, a, on, a, on a Jewish level, the idea to speak with certainty about the imminent arrival of Mashiach is a dangerous thing. It's just simply dangerous. It, it leads people to do things that can be horribly wrong. You know, and you also you have to be careful not to build up the excitement so much that you lead to the risk of messianic disappointment. And we all know what that looks like. I don't have figures on this, but my sense is that although there has been some perhaps diminution of the Hardal camp, I think they would probably, hearing you say this, say it's because we didn't have 
that fervor. It's because more of us didn't join. It's because we were being told right. to be cautious that Mashiach didn't come and that we are, as you said, not so much the Antichrist, but we are some of the reasons why the bumps in the roads are happening. And I think that the, the in the Chardal outposts and communities, these little yeshuvim, these yeshivos that, as you know, that they, you know, they build up these little yeshivas out of sort of, sort of like hovels from Hoover'sville, like in, in, in depression era America, they get routinely knocked down. You know what I'm talking about? They routinely get bulldozed down by, by the Israeli army. And that really has caused, as, as you know, there's nothing that builds a team like being put down. When they feel alienated from the army, some of their kids don't even serve in the army anymore. Listen, I mean, the focus after 67 should have been number two, two things should have happened that didn't happen. Number one, millions more Jews should have gone in Aliyah, which would have rendered a lot of these conversations irrelevant. Gaza would have been settled by not, you know, uh, you know 7,000 Jews, but by 700,000 Jews. Uh, and Shamron would see you know, millions of Jews living there, not, you know, the hundreds of thousands that live there now. And and all of these conversations would have been rendered irrelevant. Yes, the diaspora jury failed. And in that regard, the Chardal have a point. But on the other hand, what the Chardal should have been doing is, is focusing on on reaching out to Israelis and, 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 and getting them on, not, not the bandwagon of religious nationalism, but on the bandwagon of Torah. Right, that should have been the emphasis. The emphasis should have been demonstrating the beauty of Jewish life, demonstrating the meaningfulness of, of living a Torah life. That's what it should have been. It should have been a, a groundswell of enthusiasm uh, for Torah, understanding that that generation, which had rejected, you know, Yiddishkeit in Europe, and the animosity they had was it was over. That this was a generation of people who already lived their life in a Jewish land by a Jewish calendar, who could have been reached instead of turning religious Zionism into a territorial enterprise. They should have turned it into a spiritual enterprise. You know, it's interesting the way you're describing it of, of what could have been, because many of those same strands were worked wonderfully by the other subject of today's talk. By Chabad. Chabad actually have been the experts in doing exactly what you've said, of exposing non-religious Jews to the beauty of the religion, inviting them, creating outposts, Chabad houses. It, it, almost if we would take those sentences that you so masterfully put together, they could almost be a, a, a mission statement for what Chabad is about and what part of what the Rebbe pushed. So it, it's interesting that although that is what they pushed, they are our, our other feature here today in terms of the acute messianism that was on display this past week. Uh, the way I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, the stark Mishachistin of Chabad, the ones who not only don't deny that the Rebbe is Mashiach, but in every single tefillah that they engage in, I believe, after the end of every davening, they they shout out, Yechi Adonainu Mareinu Merabeinu, Melech HaMoshiach Tzidkeinu. I don't understand the whole fight, but since uh, the Rebbe died, uh, there's been a fight in Chabad. It's now in civil court between the community and the Chabad, and the Chabad hierarchy, apparently over control of the building. 
There's a debate about the plaque that's supposed to go up, whether it's supposed to say Zechot Tzadik Kaddish Levacha or not. They won't, you know, the others won't admit he's dead. And uh, there's a debate about a lot of things. Part of this tunnel issue is that the Rebbe wanted to expand 770, and the, as you put it, the Stark Mishnahistin wanted to fulfill the Rebbe's dream of uh, of expanding 770 and the pouring the concrete into that chasm is a uh, certainly sabotages that dream. Whether you're a Chabad, you know, a supporter or a uh, or a skeptic. No one can disagree that 770 is a holy place. It's a besmedrash, it's a shul. The Rebbe was, uh, you know, uh, it was his place. And any, 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 any Chabadnik and any Jew should be offended that about what happened there, the desecration and the violence that went on, the throwing of benches and the fighting with police and the throwing. I mean, it was, it was a disgrace what happened. There, if if non-Jews had done it, we would all call them anti-Semites, and it was terrible what what went on there, the spectacle for all to see, and it's triggered insanity on the internet, which I don't think is consequential, but that's just you know one part of the story, and it was a chil Hashem, and it was a it was a desecration of a holy place, and it was terribly wrong, but it 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 begs the question: Who's in charge? Nobody is willing to say we need a new Rebbe. I happen to believe that the Rebbe's intent. He used to go to the. He used to go to his predecessor's grave. The reason the rabbi, the reason the rabbi used to go to the grave, I think, is that he was setting up a precedent for his for after his his life, meaning that he wouldn't appoint a new rabbi. There would only be seven rabbis, and that his intention was, I believe this strongly, was to appoint a successor, not another rabbi, but to appoint somebody who would be the official grave visitor to come back with messages every week. That's what I believe he was setting up as, as a precedent. That's why he kept going to the caver, because his successor would not be the new Lubavitcher Rebbe. That title would die with him. He was setting up a grave visitor to come back and report on what the Rebbe wanted. But but I would say there's another thing. The Rebbe's um, expansion of Chabad into so many Mitzayim, in a way, sort of made it almost unnecessary to have a Rebbe sometimes. In other words, once he had put so many people into power, into doing different aspects of what Lubavitch was about, whether it's the telethon in California or the Chabad houses everywhere, um, and, and, and once he had churned out such voluminous uh, uh, amount of material that could be recycled, refashioned, you can understand why many of the Chabad leaders said, we don't need a Rebbe. We, the, the system that the last Rebbe helped create is so powerful that we may be able to do this without him and without having somebody else. And as you said, so whether the Rebbe himself wanted that or not, it's clear Chabad has acted in the last quarter century and more without it and has, you know, has been pretty successful. Quite successfully, but, but in moments like this, the absence of one leader becomes painfully painfully clear and, and and the detriment of that and you need you need somebody you need somebody who is the back right stuff. so, so I, again i i want to just push back a little bit and, and again they say that the the first Lubavitcher Rebbe uh, taking over from Menachem Mendel Vitebsk ended up having a hundred thousand chassidim this is what has been said now, the, again we have to realize those those numbers are a little bit astonishing numbers the interconnectedness was so tenuous because 
could the Rebbe see them? The Rebbe sent out Ksavim to them. The people came. Um, so the numbers are incredible. But in today's time, uh, where the need for connectivity, the fact that there's a, 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 a you can travel so quickly, you're right. It almost makes it you know who who are we going to? On the other hand, on the other hand, take a look at Gare. Gare, which of course is not such a major phenomena for people here in North America, but in Eretz Yisrael, the Gare Chassidim are are, are 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 one of the most important groups. And you can see that there is a power struggle there in Gare as well. I think that whether it's Ikbasa the Mashiach now or not, it becomes pretty tough to be in charge of a couple hundred thousand Jews who say, who identify with you. Um, and to be able to be that leader, to be able to give those messages that, that ring all those bells. You know, I, I, think, I, I think what strikes most people here is, given Chabad's extraordinary success, for which they deserve all the praise in the world, for taking toward every corner of, of, of the globe and doing so uh, uh, with great enthusiasm, and great commitment on the part of a very large cadre of young men and women, uh, you know, uh, representing Chabad and, and uh, all over the world, is the stark contrast between that success and the terrible failure to control your own central address, 770. I mean, how is it possible that a, a group that is so successful in establishing highly organized and highly interconnected Chabad movement across the world can't get a handle on their own base measures? Well, again, you, you are – I don't know enough about the incident to say that this is reflective of a – of of a fatal flaw. In oh, but it's ongoing tension. There's that group in the basement. There's a whole. I mean, it's it's just they they didn't they didn't take control. They didn't weed out the bad actors. They didn't you know reform the uh, the fanatics, and it's been sitting there. And it's been this this dispute has been festering for years and years now. Although in some sort of fantasy, we could talk about the Chardalniks versus the Chabad Meshachistan on some sort of gridiron. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, again, this is this program only drop in the beginning, at, probably after uh, the first uh, playoff game. You must be very happy, though, that your beloved Steelers are, are in the playoffs. Yes, I'm happy the Steelers are in the playoffs. But what gives me greater joy is the fact that uh, the Satan of the NFL, Bill <laughs> Belichick, has <laughs> humiliating you. And that this is certainly a sign of the impending arrival of the Mashiach, the slaying of the Satan. We hope he finally gets fired by that tzaddik, the, the righteous Jew craft, who is a chosid and a tzaddik in all matters of life. And that will certainly uh, speed along our path to the Messianic age, because Satan needs to be slayed. And, and Belichick was humiliated. His final game, he lost at home to the lowly New York Jets. And, you know, Belichick, the thief, the cheater, the source of corruption, is finally eliminated from the NFL, will be a great moment. Yes, he is, to borrow your phrase, the, the anti-Christ himself. But I would just tell you that, you know, I, I, I can say as a fan, both of us, uh, your Steelers, my Packers, were left for the dead uh, in midseason. They looked right. horrible. It seemed like it was, you didn't even want to talk about it. And now, you know, you, you, you have Mason Rudolph. We're on uh, the road to ascendancy. Yeah, there's probably will be some Steelers fans going to Buffalo, right? For the, for the. Oh, yeah. Every game's a home game. Steeler Nation. 
But but the Buffalo fans are really something. The Buffalo Hebra. Yeah, but really we all know, we all remember Jim Kelly. They're doomed for defeat. No, no. Th- this guy is a little bit different. This <laughs> this Josh Allen is Josh Allen. How they beat Miami after two end zone interceptions and another stop on the one yard line. How they beat Miami after messing up so terribly is breathtaking. Yeah, right. So I think, you know, both of these cities, Buffalo, Pittsburgh, two really normal, normal American cities, normal American, tough, gritty cities that uh, it's great to see those teams play. I have to, again, throw in for myself. And by the time this drops, both of our teams might be eliminated. But I can I can think there's nothing sweeter than thinking about Packers, Cowboys. I'm not talking about Des Bryant not catching the ball. I'm talking about the ice bowl. I'm talking about uh, ice bowl. even the, the year before the game, the, that was played in, 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 um, in the cotton bowl where the championship game where Meredith threw the interception at the very, I think it was almost the last play of the game uh, as the, as the Cowboys were driving to tie the Cowboys and Packers, you know, really represent uh, also a great, great rivalry. And I think the, um, you know the the Packers were from the NFL when the the basically the NFL was a bunch of ragtag scalawags, and the Cowboys really represent the from 1960 I think was their first season. The Cowboys really represent when the NFL came of age. But I, I, I to me you have to be masked the two uh, tzaddikim of the franchises. Chuck Noll gets his credit as well, but Lombardi and Landry. I mean you have. Landry, who was this the staunch Christian, Christian Stoic. And then you have Lombardi, who was full of, of, of power, passion, pushing. When you see Cowboys Packers, you know, whatever the result is going to be, you see those ghosts, those, those Nishamas. All good Jews will be rooting for the Packers. We'll see what it is next week. Take care, everybody. Be well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.